Hello everybody, Mitch Michaels here. It's time for another episode of the Money Mitch Effect. Hope you're enjoying your week. Hope you're enjoying this summer that is upon us. A lot to talk about on today's show. I want to give a quick shout out to the Washington Capitals, the Stanley Cup champions, the first time in over two decades that the D.C. sports scene has a champion, Alex Ovechman, first cup, Conn Smythe MVP, and they're on the greatest bender probably of championship sports history in this country. Big shout out to them. The Warriors are NBA champions, but today's show is going to focus on the French Open, Rafael Nadal, Simona Halep. going to talk to Rachel Stolman, good friend of the show, tennis professional, about how each champion was able to succeed at Roland Garros. What Roger Federer's issue with Nike is, is he going to re-sign or is he going to go to Uniglo? We talk about that, Serena Williams' return, and we look ahead to Wimbledon. And then we come up with Jose Young's On the Money Mitch Effect. He's going to join the show to talk UFC 225, the Romero-Whitaker rematch, an epic fight there. And Wilder Joshua has finally been booked. Also some wrestling talk as well. It's Rachel Stoneman and Jose Young's On the Money Mitch Effect. Let's start the show. All right, now on the Money Mitch Effect, we're going to talk tennis. The French Open is in the books. Special guest on the program, friend of the show, tennis professional, and now budding media sensation as well, Rachel Stoneman. Welcome back to the Money Mitch Effect. Hi, thanks for having me. Happy to be back on. There's always this time of year. I like to talk tennis with you at any time of year, but especially when the majors are in the books and the French Open was a tale of two different draws. The men's game is what we thought it would be, another Nadal trophy, but the women's game had a lot of uh, wide-open play, some great matches, and Simona Halep getting her first Grand Slam, finally getting her first Grand Slam. But I'll start with this, Rachel. It's clay court season. It's very unique. The style is different than hard courts and grass courts. And as someone that played the game and played on different surfaces and follows it. What do you think, what's your takeaway from the clay court season? Are you a fan of it more so than others? Is it unique in its own right? How do you evaluate what you see, especially at the highest level at Roland Garros? Right. Well, I always personally loved clay. It's just something different. It's a different look from like the year-round hard court. It's fun. It's very physical. It's a taxing tournament. It's hard. Like, it's a lot harder than uh, any other surface there is. So I always think it's pretty fun. I think it's the most kind of physical way that a player can play a match on court. I think that this year's French Open was pretty exciting as, you know, we saw um, Simone win her first Grand Slam, finally kind of broke through. And and then on the guys' side, we had a couple, like, young guys really stand out. So I think it was, like, a really, you know, fun kind of a good um, tournament overall. I'm glad you said the word physical because I think it's also the surface that can be swayed depending on what the elements are like. What we saw this year and what we've seen in years past in the second week was a lot of rain come down. And you know as someone that's been out there that when the ball, when the rain comes down, the ball gets heavier, it, it becomes a wetter surface. And I think having a guy like Nadal who can just do it all, I don't think he faces the adversity. But on the women's side, I saw some, some changes in strategies. I think that's something that you can definitely speak to, that when it starts to rain, even if it's not raining that day, if it's a buildup from the rain, it can really affect the play one way or the other. Right. Well, clay, actually, like it already slows everything down. So you automatically are going to have longer points, like shots that you didn't think that your opponent would get to, they'll probably get to it. And, and points will last a lot, lot longer on clay. So you, you add kind of the element of rain that makes the ball a little bit heavier, might 
you know, sit up and instead of, you know, skinning. And, and I think that that makes for longer points, which indeed makes it more physical. It's very fascinating to see. And as I said, I mean, it's not, there's really nothing that slows down Rafael Nadal. 11 majors now at the French Open alone, which it, it's insane to think about in a lot of ways that we've got basically three stages of Nadal here, three different dominant runs alone at the French Open. His record now is 86-2 and two at Roland Garros, which is just <laughs> ridiculous to say. Only Margaret Court, who won 11 Australian Opens in the pre-Open era, has won that many met many majors that many times so i I just i don't i'm running out of superlatives to talk about it's almost like you have to compare him against himself in previous runs because there's no standard for what nadal's doing that's a really really good point i mean 11 times is absolutely like absurd that someone can you know stay that fit for over a decade and be able to perform every every year at that same exact tournament is i mean it's pretty amazing and he does it there and you know, Federer does it at Wimbledon to a, almost as great as Nadal, I suppose, on clay. Yeah, I don't know if this is the best version of Rafa. It might be, which is a scary thing. He's been doing it so so long at the French Open. But here's one thing I have noticed, Rachel, and it's that the variety. He's still the specimen, the, the best of five sets. You mentioned that the points and the ball set up longer. His cardio, his stamina, and his ability to grind out points is on display and gives him that advantage. But what I noticed this tournament and we're basically nitpicking because he was just so dominant. But the variety, he was mixing in drop shots. He was mixing up his serves. He didn't face a whole lot of adversity, but I was very, yeah. very thrilled to see him add some new wrinkles to his game. Yeah, I think you're right. He did uh, play with a little bit more like variety. I, and I think that's something that he needs to kind of do as he continues to battle his own injuries. He has his you know knee issues. Uh, he's got a lot of like physical stuff. So I think that he has to adjust his game in order to continue to play at a high level and if anyone can do that it's certainly him so it is he's won now three tournaments 11 times with barcelona and monte carlo just just ridiculous they've already named a court after him in barcelona yeah. I, I would imagine the other two would follow suit the guy he beat in the final dominic team making his first major final he was a semi-finalist last year he's had deep runs in grand slam tournaments now and along with Alexander Zverev, who he beat in the quarterfinal, these are supposed to be the two guys that are going to break through and be the next face of tennis. Finally, some new blood at the top. But as Nadal showed, they're not quite there yet. What did you think about team and his performance this tournament? And is he that close, or do you think he's still yeah. a ways away? I think there are a couple of young players that are really, really standing out. And I think that you know one of them will hopefully win a Grand Slam soon but I think team specifically he plays um he strategizes his schedule in a different way where he plays everything like he literally plays a lot a lot of tournaments I know that um last time we spoke I was talking about how pros are strategically scheduling scheduling or um structuring their schedule so that they can um rest and recover from tournament to tournament but team literally is he goes back to back to back playing and I think like I would personally like argue that because I don't think that's smart. I think you need to rest and stuff, but you actually cannot argue it when he performs at the French Open, making it to the finals. That Maybe that is his style and his way that builds him, and he's able to compete and be even stronger in, in order to make it to the final. Right. I should point out, he's the only guy to beat Nadal on clay in the last two seasons. Right. So he, he did it once each year. Now, those were, those were best of three, but I think yeah. we, we both saw this match thinking, 
to have any prayer against Nadal, you have to win the first set. And when Nadal gets that first set, it's like an avalanche. He yeah. runs downhill with it. Team is by definition a shot maker. He's got a lot of uh, he's got a lot of great ground strokes in his game. I do wonder though. I think it is a fair critique that you brought up. If you're playing all this tennis, now we go to best of five. You've been playing a while. It, it's yeah. fair to think that he might be wearing down. I don't want to make it yeah. an excuse because it is Rafa, but that might be a fair point. Yeah, it's like I mean, did that did all of that playing prepare him for the finals, or did it actually fatigue him? I I personally think it prepared him for it because if he was super like tired and stuff from it he wouldn't have been able to make it that far i also think that um like you mentioned how he's the only one that beat him in the rafa in the last like three years um and he did it twice that he like i actually thought he would have a really really good chance of possibly beating him again on clay even though it was a five set instead of a three so i think that it was an it was an exciting kind of lead up to the final a little bit like not as exciting since since he, it wasn't as close but uh but you know it was good it was crazy too to think that now with Nadal's win with the open era starting in the 70s the big fours won about one fourth of that <laughs> they've won right. so it's just it's just crazy but yeah, but I mean, these guys are close. I mean, there are a lot of good young players, including another one I wanted to bring up in Alexander Zverev, because I don't know if you realized it, but this was the first quarterfinal he'd ever made at a major. So as good as he's been, as many Masters titles as he's had, yeah. this was the first time he's ever made a quarterfinal. I know he's young, but that was kind of startling to hear. Yeah, yeah. You know what? I would, I would, after, I didn't, that was the first time I heard it too. I really thought that he had made it to at least a quarterfinal. I'm sure he's made a lot of round, or fourth rounds. But, you know, now he has a taste for it, and I think that we'll see more of him up in the quarters and semis moving forward in the slams and other tournaments. So, Yeah, team on clay was tough for Zverev, but I don't know if you saw the early stages of that match. His body wasn't wasn't holding up. He looked at his box at one point and said, I'm pretty much done. So yeah. that, that was a – I don't know that he's beaten team the way he played in that match, but there's a fitness level to the French Open, and I think – People yeah. don't understand that that you probably would have to be the most fit. You have to be fit regardless to win a Grand Slam. But on that surface, if you have any you know issues with your body and your stamina or, or anything, it's going to show up. Yeah, no, you're right. Kind of exactly what I was just saying um, before about how it's just the most physical surface. So, yeah, you're right about them. I want to see Zverev and team break through. And I think one of the best things to take away from this weekend, especially for team, is that he's not happy with being the bridesmaid anymore. Right. Like there's that new car smell of like, oh, I'm in a major semi or a final and it's good to be here and Rafa's a legend. But the guys that break through, and I yep. go back to when Djokovic won his first major, it's not, you, you can't just be happy being there. You want to believe that you yeah. can beat those guys. I mean, but, but you look at all these players like Murray and what was it like 12, 2012, he finally won his first Grand Slam. You look at like Wawrinka and after being in all those finals, he finally won his. And then even Simo Halep, like, she finally just won her first Grand Slam after being in many finals. So, I mean, I, I would say, like, for him, like, I wouldn't be discouraged. Like, it'll come. He just needs to stick to the process and stay patient. So. Right, right. Another, that's a good basketball reference. They just need to trust the process. That's all you <laughs> need to do. Uh, Rachel stole my money, Mitch Effect. I do have to ask you about Novak Djokovic because he made the quarterfinal, had been playing some good tennis, but right. then he loses to the Italian Cecinato, who nobody had heard of. I know. And like 20 
ranked, which I mean that's up there, but I didn't no, really he was think. ranked like seventy second going into this tournament, and oh. it was yeah. The funniest part about this was, I mean, he tripled his social media followers that day of that match, which is to be expected. But if you went on his page, he had practiced with Djokovic like three or four times in Europe in the last four years. And was put, he like? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like saying things like nice hitting with the legend, like great right. practice with the best. And then he goes out and beats him at the French Open. It's unbelievable. It was a great moment for him. His family was really emotional. But on the other side, Novak Djokovic, again, when we think he's starting to get back to playing dominant tennis, it just goes awry. And it goes awry in a, in a very bad way. Yeah. I, wondered, I wanted to ask you this. We're at a point now where it, it's hard to determine if it's physical or mental, if what combination yeah. it is. What do you think when you watch Novak Djokovic play now in these majors? That's such like a question for me too. I truly don't know what's going on. Like I think it's more mental. He always to me was one of the most physical players out there. Uh, I think something's going on in his mind that he needs to kind of figure out. Maybe you know, see a sports psychologist if he hasn't already. But I think that like he was so 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 dominant like the last you know x amount of years and now he's just kind of fallen off and he's not consistent and um i think that it is something going on with him and but he does figure it out for his own sake yeah you mentioned him being a very physical player he was also you know as nice as he is in the media and as charming as he can be he was a killer out there in his heyday yeah and i've noticed breaking down some more of these matches especially this one when he gets break point opportunities or he's ahead love 30 the other guy's serving he had a couple chances like that and he just blew opportunity after opportunity. And the old, the, the peak Novak Djokovic wouldn't have done that. He'll step on his opponent's throat and he'll go to yeah. the finish line and end it. Yeah. He's keeping these players around and they are playing good matches in a lot of cases. Chung at the Australian Open, but this isn't the same guy. I mean, it's hard to sustain yeah. what he did, but he's not the same guy, clearly. Yeah, like he was always known for executing like everything. Like if he's supposed to win a match, like on paper, he's going to win the match. Like he he's not known to lose to, like, a no-name, not calling, um, how, how do you say his name? Che- Chechenato. Che- yeah, it's, <laughs> we all learned nope. it for the first time last week. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not calling him, like, a no-name, but, like, he's known for, you know, winning the matches he's supposed to. So I think that now, I don't know what he's doing, but he needs to kind of figure it out in his mind. It should point out, we mentioned this before we started recording, both Nadal and Djokovic have been non-committal about Wimbledon, so that's not what you want to hear. <laughs> Nadal no. not playing would shock me, but I'm not. You can't rule anything out with Djokovic now. Yeah, and what I was saying before is like, if you're gonna sit out a tournament, like don't sit out one of the slams. Just in my opinion, because you know there there are only four a year. There are so many other tournaments to choose from. I would just try and suck it up and and play because because they're the biggest tournaments, you know, and most anticipated. But but again, if either of them aren't ready or physically healthy enough to play, then don't play. But that's just kind of my thoughts on that. Yeah, especially when you're at that elite level. Djokovic, who's probably only got slams to play for. Right. So uh, yeah. another another positive story I did want to mention quickly. Even though he got shellacked in the semifinal by Nadal, Rachel yeah. Juan Martin Del Potro made that semifinal run, beat Chilich in the quarterfinals in a long match. He's up to number four in the world. And this is a yeah. guy that's been through so much injury after injury, all these wrist surgeries. It's kind of cool to see him rebuilt and, and reclaim. He's got a Masters 1000 title now at Indian Wells and now back to number four in the world. Yeah, he's certainly persistent. Like, uh, he's been around for a while now. And, and uh, I mean, he just seems to keep getting better and better. And maybe that comes with experience and over time 
playing all these slams and um, and like you said, being able to come back after the wrist injuries and and play, I think that goes to show a lot about his own character as a player. So I think he could have a pretty good Wimbledon. I don't. I mean, with how he's serving, yeah. with with his improved net game, I would not rule him out making a very deep run at Wimbledon. So I just something to monitor yeah. there. But he I said. He said two years ago when he lost to Warinka before Stan won the whole thing at the U.S. Open that it was his first comeback. He made a run, I think, to the to the quarters, I think it was when he lost to him, and he said, I have to get my fitness up, and now he's yeah. clearly done that. So I think he knew what it took to get there. Having been there is a luxury that he knows what it takes to get to the top, and, yeah. and he did it. So that's, uh, that's something cool to see. <laughs> the one final note on the men's draw before we talk about the women, Rachel, was another disappointing two weeks in Paris. For the U.S. men, no deep runs yet again. It was a, a very unfortunate tournament for them. I, I do, I do want to ask you from from a different perspective: Is this something that we should expect, just based on how kids are growing up playing the game with less clay court tennis at the younger levels? Because it's been a while. I mean, Andre Agassi, I think, was the last quarter finalist, and that was like 15 years ago. Yet yeah, last U.S. quarter finalist. So I'm wondering if we should even be realistic to expect a U.S. player to make a deep run. Really good point. And maybe it does have something to do with the amount of clay courts there are in the U.S. There aren't too many red clay unless it's like California or Florida. So I think that's a good point. Maybe it is because there's a lack of clay courts and maybe um, maybe just a lack of being able to train on that surface. I think that at the end of the day, if you're a strong enough player and fit enough, I think that you can you know, perform well at a clay court. There were a few Americans in the French Open tournament that I thought would go a lot further than they did. So I'm not sure what's going on there. But, um, yeah, something there is something to be said about the U.S. and clay court. Yeah, that is true. I mean, there were players that just underachieved flat out. Right. But, yeah, I, I'm, I'm wondering, though, because we're getting to a point, and it hasn't really affected the women. We saw two women match up against each other but, in the semifinals. So. Yeah. Something There's so the many, side. so many clay courts like overseas and in Europe, and that's where we see a lot of like you know the in the tournament there are deeper, deeper into the tournament there are a lot more you know European players. So maybe that's also something they have more time out there on court. We'll see what happens there. Well, the women's side, French Open, still <laughs> chatting with Rachel Stolman on the Money Mitch Effect. Saw Simona Halep get her first major, and if I have this stat correctly, Rachel, she became a, the first women ranked number one to get her first slam at that position. So she That's got to number so one. weird to me. Like, yeah, there's got to be some kind of like... It's crazy. Like ranking, ranking like flaw or something where you can be, you know, but it is what it is. Well, and it's funny because we talked at Australia how Wozniacki, who was the most accomplished player not to win a slam, she got her first slam against Halep, and Halep basically took the mantle. Halep returned the favor, not against Wozniacki, but in getting that major. She had been so close for so long, including last year, where she had a three-love lead up a set in the second against Ostapenko and just crumbled. But this tournament especially, and it started with the first match where she lost her first set of the tournament, she battled. And I was really impressed again, slowing down a set and a break. She battled throughout. I think it not being easy actually helped her more and maybe took a little bit of the pressure off. Yeah, I think that... um... Halep, I was so happy to see her kind of come through and win her, you know, her first final. I think that she probably battled with some self-doubt. Like, she's not a robot. She has feelings. She's, you know, human. (laughs) She's a, yeah, I think it's also good is that she's a, she's a really popular player on tour. 
and in the locker room. Um, I think she would make for a popular champion, like if she continues to kind of make it over that kind of little curse she has in the finals where she can't uh, convert. But, um, you know, I heard that she, like, just started seeing the same um, sports psychologist that Murray saw when he uh, when he was kind of going through the same thing where he was in the finals, in the finals, but couldn't win a final match. Uh, and I think she saw that same sports psychologist. So that, you know, goes to show, show some for the mental side of the sport. She's certainly a strong enough player to win these finals matches. So I think it's just that little upper edge that she was missing and she finally kind of came through with. Well, I have to ask now because it's another sports psychologist reference, but it, it does make sense that this is a sport where you might need the most help in the mental capacity with the professional yeah. because it's individual. And not only is it individual, but you have no coaches out there in the moment helping you. It's just yourself and your thoughts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember in college, like one of uh, one of my coaches kind of comparing, like aside from you know, like the uh, rare just talents of Federer and Nadal, like. And, and maybe you could throw in, you know, Murray or Djokovic, but like the players in the top, you know, 50, 60, 70, I think that is what they said. They're all like at the same level game wise. And like there's only so high you can go to be at the highest level. But what separates like the very best from, you know, the average or, you know, like the 20s through mm-hmm. 70s is is that upper edge in the mental side of the sport you always hear the term like tennis is like what x percent mental and it really is like so i think that's what kind of separates it and and so that's my thoughts on that well no it is a good point and it's a good segue to talking about who helped beat in the final sloan stevens it was yeah great to, it was great to see her back in a major final she lost in the first round at australia and and a lot of people had their doubts, especially an early exit at Indian Wells, if this was just a one-hit wonder. She wins Miami. Yeah. She makes a deep run here to the final of the French Open. And she's somebody that I had heard is also kind of mental in that regard, that where yeah. if, if her thing, if, if everything's not lined up for her, it's not likely that she's going to go on a deep run. But when she's feeling it, she believes and she can, as proven, beat just about anyone. So she's somebody yeah. else that when she's on, it's like she gets into these heat check moments where She's just crud- like McKees had no chance in that semifinal. Yeah, yeah, I think that uh, Sloan, like she's she has the ability to be like consistently at the top at every Slam tournament. But there's always like a thought in my mind like she might lose first round. I just don't right. know, you know. <laughs> and I don't know kind of what about that kind of you know means. But I think that if she kind of gets it all together, she'll be able to consistently perform at a um, Grand Slam. Yeah, she's going to move up to top five after this run of the French Open final, That's which is remarkable. Considering where she was at last year. In the summer, she was in the top like 800, I think, at the yeah. time. Somewhere Same. around there. Uh, Muguruza was the other semifinalist. And she, My favorite. Yeah, it, you know what's weird about Garbini is she has a top-end game that could beat just about anybody. She destroyed Sharapova in the quarterfinals. That match was in like an hour. And yeah. then Den had a, had a very bad first set against Halep and couldn't officially recover. She's somebody, too, that I don't know what it is about her lack of consistency at times. Maybe it's the maybe it's the clay court service. I know she's won here before. But when she starts spraying balls and maybe it's the defense of, of a Simona Halep, she does kind of get in her own head a little bit. I was hoping for a more competitive match in the semi, as I'm sure you were. Yeah, I was. It was kind of surprising that it wasn't, and disappointing. She's one. Of, she's my favorite female player aside from Serena. I think that she's pretty headstrong player. Like she's smart, and 
I've never really seen her get distracted uh, at, you know, any kind of match or show any frustration. But that uh, semifinal ma match was definitely disappointing. Um, I thought it was could have been better. I think she did really well against Sharapova, which is kind of cool. But Yeah, and it was another major, actually, where we talked about inconsistencies. It was cool to see so many different contenders. Well, Ostapenko loses first round yeah. after winning the tournament last year, so that yes. threw everybody up. Yeah. I do have to ask you about Serena, though, because everybody, all eyes were on her and the comeback, and maybe maybe we fall victims. I think we do with when we see greatness, and we see greatness at, towards the end of a career, that when one good thing happens, we just assume, oh, she can make a run all the way to the final. I don't think yeah. a lot of people took into account the grind of playing on the clay court tennis for somebody in her position coming back to the sport after a long layoff. She did look good. She beat Barty and Gurgis in convincing fashion. Barty in three sets, Gurgis in straights. Yep. Then she pulls out before the matchup we all wanted to see against Maria Sharapova. We know why she did it, but it still sucks. Like, we can say that, right? Like, it just sucks that we didn't get to see that match. Yeah, yeah I think that it was an interesting choice for her to come back to, to choose a tournament that she came back to being the French, which is, you know, as we were talking about earlier, the most physical tournament. Obviously, everyone trusts her opinion about when to return because uh, she's the greatest there is. But um, I I had heard, like, a lot of kind of people like, oh, well, if it wasn't Sharapova, do you think she would have played the match? Um, <laughs> and, I mean, she you got to trust her judgment, especially, like, would she really want to kind of, you know, give away an edge not to take a risk of losing? And she was had an 18-match win streak. And, yeah. And, so. Yeah, what a rivalry that was, right? I wish I could be known as a rival of somebody I haven't beaten in 15 <laughs> years. But yeah. I, look, I, when she said it was a peck issue and it affected her serve, we went back and watched the doubles match that she lost the day before, and it was really bad, her serves in that match. I don't really? think she wanted to – I don't think she was going to play regardless. That, uh, that part I, I'm not with, that train of thought that she just didn't play because of Sharapova. But right. the timing of the announcement being last minute, yeah, you could talk me into her saying, you know what, it's Maria, I'm going to let her go through her yeah. walk and wait. I mean, that part, okay. But I don't think she would have played regardless of who it was. Yeah, I agree with you on that point. I just remember kind of hearing everyone kind of like saying, well, it's because of Cherapova. Hey, what I don't do you... think Cherapova honestly has that kind of edge over Serena. Right, exactly. What, uh, what do you think <laughs> about the debate about whether or not she should have had protected seating? I know that was a hot topic. Uh, she got a wild card into the tournament, which, as Sharapova not getting one last year, proved they don't have to give out wild cards to anyone. But do you think she should have had a seed protected? Yeah, that's certainly something that has kind of been in the discussion of, if, like, uh, what is it, women on tour that, you know, become pregnant, and can they kind of freeze their seating or something? And I think that's something that the WTA needs to kind of figure out and look into making some kind of a rule or, or format for that um to wear because you know it doesn't make mm -hmm. any sense where after even after a year serena comes back and is ranked what was she ranked? something outrageous something yeah yeah i think that there has to be some kind of strategy to um to seating right for our I, women i think it's fair it would be fair to protect her at a seating slot whether that's like 31 right. or 32 just so she avoids having to play a top seed in the first round or the first two rounds essentially and that would be better for those players at the seeds and not have to deal with her as well. I think no one's asking for her to get the number one seed just because right. she missed the year. But, yeah, a seeded spot I think would be fair and would help her um, and, and prolong her career as well. 
but no, I mean, I, I'm fascinated by what the women's game looks going into Wimbledon. Serena says she's going to play. It's her best tournament, clearly. Yep. If she can serve well, she's always got a shot there. But the way the women's game's looking with Muguruza, the defending champion, Halep off of her first major, Sharapova rounding into form, there's like about 10 to 12 women, I think, that could win this tournament. Yeah, I think so. Like, um, I always look at kind of like odds, like uh, betting odds and stuff, and it's always like of pretty course. close been even but i'm sure that like this wimbledon it's going to be like a lot of like kind of uh, any any you know a dozen women that probably have the same probability of winning wimbledon so yeah i think you're right about that i honestly don't know who is going to have a strong run i, I would say serena i would say uh garbine i would say halep sloan i don't know but i i wouldn't be surprised if she does so yeah and then there are other players that play well on grass as well like Kvitova, is she playing? And, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah it was so. fun about Kvitova, too. A, a good story that she's picked her career up. She had the most wins this year on tour of anyone going into the French Open. Yeah, it's, I saw that. It's crazy. I mean, well, it's great because what she went through with the home invasion and then not knowing if she was going to yeah. ever be able to play again, it's good to see that she's back. She's a two-time Wimbledon champion, so maybe she'll make yeah. a run uh, as what, well. What? How did she do at French? What did she? What Quarter round did she lose? Uh, was that quarters or the fourth round? It was the fourth round. She lost to Contavit, a nice young so player. So still a strong performance. Yeah. yeah, and she won a clay court title this season as well. So she's... Uh, yeah. So going she, into Wimbledon, probably looking strong. Yeah, she's doing well there. Uh, Rachel Stoneman, Money Mitch Effect. Uh, before I let you go, I, I do want to talk to you about some other things that kind of cross over tennis and other avenues. Yeah. You mentioned this. Roger Federer's coming back, and he's... Back on the grass court season, he's out of hibernation. He's playing in Stuttgart this week, Halle, Germany the next week, and then Wimbledon uh, after that. But the big drama, the big news is off the court with him. And we tend to talk about this before. He currently does not have a contract at Nike. It expired at the end of March, so he's been without a contract since then. And the report that's been pretty much verified is that Uniqlo has offered him a a 10-year, $300 million contract to leave yeah. Nike and join join them. Now he's since stated that those are those are rumors. We're still in discussions. Nothing's official, but it's yeah. clearly an option. And yeah. as someone that follows tennis and follows fashion and endorsements, there's no bigger fish, tennis or otherwise, maybe in the sports fashion world than Roger Federer. This is a game changer, one way or the other. What do you think about the probability <laughs> that he would actually leave Nike, and if you'd be a fan of it personally? Okay, first and foremost, I do have an opinion on this, but first and foremost, I think that his deal is up with Nike. They were offering ten, him $10 million a year, right? Uniqlo is giving him $30 million a year. I mean, <laughs> yeah. like, obviously, yes, it's a good deal. Like, go for it. Like, I don't care. And that's my opinion on it is that if it's, you know, that, that much of a difference, no matter, you know, how much he already makes, I would definitely say it's a good move. Personally, I think that, it doesn't kind of match up with all of his other sponsors. You got Mercedes Benz, uh, Shandon, you got Rolex, uh, and then you have Uniqlo. Like it yeah. just kind of doesn't match up. But, well, your, uh, your first reaction was, "How can they afford this?" With which I think a yeah. lot of people had. I was the, like, "How can they actually <laughs> afford better?" But this is the thing, though. All right, a couple a couple things I want to bring up: why it's messy, why it's not just take the biggest money. First of all, as you know, shoes are a big deal. I don't yeah. know what Uniqlo offers in the line of footwear. But Andy Murray just proved that theory a couple years ago when he was signed to Under Armour, and he kept wearing Adidas tennis shoes because he wasn't satisfied with what they had produced yet. <laughs> so I don't know what Fed- – and, and Federer's probably got to be pretty picky at this point in his career. 
Yeah. It's got to be the perfect shoe for him to play. You know, go could have a situation where they have this guy to $30 million a year and he's not wearing their shoes. That could yeah. be messy. But also the fact that Nike, which has a great relationship with Federer throughout the years, he's got a building named after, after him on their campus. They own the RF logo. So that's a I, huge thing oh, as well. Yeah. You know, I, I think that uh, since even though they do own it, like, you know, he can make his own another one with Unico. It, it'll <laughs> still be successful. He's right. Roger Federer. He's, you know, one of the greatest athletes there ever was. So I just, again, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's like the best brand or apparel for him. I was kind of thinking about how, like, do you remember seeing that, like, LeBron did, like, Kia commercials? Like, I mean, that, like, yeah, that's just like, ridiculous. Like, you can't even, like, you can't expect me to believe that LeBron's out driving you know, a Kia. Like, Sha- Shaq in a Buick, yeah. It's, uh... <laughs> yeah, so it's kind of like that. Like, he's going to walk the walk with this and, and just do the, do the job. I think also it's a smart deal for, and this might be another way that we can talk about Unico being able to afford him, is that Fed probably doesn't have many years, you know, left. I would say, obviously, I don't want to say it, but probably, you know, five or so. Mm-hmm. And so it's not like they're locked in a deal with him for like a dozen years. It's just like kind of, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, the the big connection that people are are connecting to is the fact that it's a Japanese company. The Olympics are in Tokyo in 2020. So there could be a huge promotional thing there as well. I think it, you know, and Federer made more money than any athlete last year off of his endorsements. Any athlete in the world. Really? He's the one guy. Yeah, they did total earnings of athletes. It was Mayweather and McGregor because of that fight. But if you just go off of endorsements, it's Federer number one. And that proves that he could sell anything. It's not about the brand and, and it's not about the specific company for him. He sells the company as opposed to the other way around. I do think, though, that given the nature of their relationship, given that Federer is a big loyalty guy, I think this is a leverage play. I mean, it, it, we'll see how serious he is and if Nike does come around at all in their negotiations. But I just, I'm still, I'm still hesitant to think he's going to accept the deal. This is when Nike usually busts out their lifetime contracts, by the way that LeBron and a couple other athletes have. Yes. Can you expand on that last thing you said about it? Yeah, no, I mean, this is usually when there's ever a negotiation and an athlete's thinking about leaving, that's just a, a huge breadwinner. This is when Nike busts out their lifetime contracts by yeah. the book. So, so you know, we're talking about shoes, and I actually thought about that. Like, I could see Nike still kind of working out a deal for shoes with Fed. That's, I, if you're offering, if, if you're going to pay somebody $30 million, I want full rights. Right. <laughs> so I don't I don't know about that. I, I thirty million doesn't get all Fetter. I mean I know it's Roger Fetter, but wow, that's an expensive game to play. Uh given what other shoe contracts go for. Um wow. So hey, it's Roger Fetter. Yeah. I mean, what do you think about um him switching? Like I know we kinda discussed it, but I really liked what you were saying. Unique loan. Yeah, no, I, I just think that Uniqlo is a unique company, and I think Federer will do well wherever he goes. But it is it is a little different for that for him being at a company that's not a premier sportswear company, a company like Nike that is basically signifies excellence. Definitely in this country, but I would say de- I would say a a good amount around the world. So it would be a little weird that he just goes and, yeah. and takes the payout at this point when money is never going to be an issue with him. Which is and why I, guess- I still can't see it being official. Yeah, and I guess we can also um, say, I remember before I told you, well, how can they actually afford, like, Fetter? And, you know, uh, it's not new to the sport. Djokovic used to, you yeah. know, wear it. Nishikori. Yeah, Nishi- yep. Yeah. So. yeah, before he switched to Lacoste. 
So, yeah, it's certainly kind of a fun kind of switch and brings some drama to the fashion side of the game, which I always get kind of excited about. Yeah, well, I know that. And, Rachel, before I let you go, i got to talk about your current happenings right now. Yeah. Hosting this web series called The Toss-Up, where you're Mm -hmm. going to tennis tournaments, talking to people, still writing. Got a trip coming up to Queens Club. How has it been? I mean, I know you did some stuff in at Miami. I know you were talking to some people there, trying to line up some stuff at Queens Club. What's it been like going to the grounds and, and getting these interviews and just talking tennis with people, players and otherwise, that share that passion for the game? Yeah, so it's been really, really cool so far. Like Going to these tournaments and being able to kind of interview entertainers that love the sport, professionals, professional coaches, just all these people. It's been really cool to kind of hear their side of the sport and also offer offer kind of something different to tennis fans out there. It's been pretty cool um, kind of using my own Rolodex to kind of set up these interviews and, and do all these kind of different segments to inform people, to excite people, and just to kind of bring a different side, like a uh, view to the sport. So it's been a blast so far. Um, I leave for London on Thursday to go to Queen's Club. So we've, we have some stuff set up there the company courtly i'm working for so uh so that's it's so exciting and and uh, i you know got a lot of tournaments lined up going to dc the city open cincy open u.s open so um atlanta might be going to atlanta bbnt so mm. that sounds like a fun run especially london where you're basically getting to see a grass court tournament which not a lot of people can say because it's such a short yeah. season so uh, and it does look like there'll be a lot of good players there as well. But I was no, I was I was proud of what you've done, and I also <laughs> think that that article that you wrote about comparing players to NBA players was kind of yeah. good to the NBA. So, what do you think about that? No, it was good. I mean, look, it, it was good. You're not, you're never gonna, you're probably not gonna find anybody in the world that's gonna agree with you know, know. twelve <laughs> comparisons, and that's okay. Just back up what you think, and I thought you did that, so I thought it was good. Thank you. Thank you. Know, Who's your it, favorite comparison? I'd probably say, you know, I know you took flack for it, but the LeBron Federal one was pretty good. Right. I was like. <laughs> I No, I mean, it's just, it's it's an easy one. I told you where I would have differed. I told you where I would have differed. I would have compared Djokovic to Paul George. Yeah, but, I agree. With you I know. Mean, it's different kind of. And and maybe maybe it's somewhere I'll kind of redo it next year. My favorite was J.R. Smith and Nick Kyrgios. Uh, I think they're similar. Right, of course, yeah. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I don't know. We'd have to ask Nick if he's ever forgot the score in a match before, but probably (laughs) that probably would have uh, clinched it for you. But, no, Rachel, this was a blast. Thanks for coming on and talking tennis and and safe travels. Good luck with everything at Queens Club and beyond. And, uh, yeah, we'll have to talk at some point later on in the summer. Definitely. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks again for coming on the Money Mitch Effect. All right, huge thanks to Rachel Stillman. As always, make sure you check out her website, her columns, and her show that she hosts, The Toss-Up. She'll be back to talk on some tennis as well, especially now that I know i got a correspondent going to all these tournaments. Going to have to get her on the show more often, but huge thanks again to her. Always a blast talking tennis. Now it's time to switch sports, go to the octagon, the boxing ring, and the wrestling ring a little bit to talk to Jose Youngs. He was at UFC 225 in Chicago. Got to talk about Romero Whitaker, the Romero weight cutting incident, and that fight itself. The card was stacked. We break down all of the fights there. 
We also talk about boxing, Bud Crawford, great performance against Joe Horn, Wilder, and Joshua appears to be headed in the right direction. A lot to talk about with Jose Young on the Money Mitch Effect. He's a writer, fan-sided, happy to have him on the show. Here he is now. All right, now joining us on the Money Mitch Effect to talk yet again the hat trick of mixed martial arts boxing and New Japan Pro Wrestling. It's MMA writer Jose Youngs. Jose, thanks for joining the show. Anytime, man. Haven't done a lot of radio this week, but I always make time for Money Mitch. You know, it's great, and I do appreciate that, but there's times when we schedule something well in advance, like a big event's coming up, and I want to make sure I get you on the show to break it down. And there's times like the last couple of days where a UFC card just was was a great was a great card top to bottom which we're going to get into UFC 225 boxing news there was a good fight over the weekend with Crawford decimating Horn heavyweight title fight getting signed and then new Japanese pro wrestling news so it's good that the stars are aligning we got burned on the John Jones suspension or yeah drug suspension last time so it's good to at least have some luck go away this time yeah I think the stars aligned to get a couple weeks off from traveling so it's perfect to be on Money Mitch. All right, I'm going to start with this. UFC 225 in Chicago had a very stacked lineup, including the fight pass and prelim card uh, fights. And I want to get your take on it, but I first want to ask you a question. When was the last time, and it could have been recently, I don't know, but I just was kind of impressed, kind of a cool fact that every main fight, every main card fight went to a decision. Can't remember that happening too much. Um... We've had a few, I think, but none that have been – well, I, can, I can't think of any off top, like specific ones off the top of my head. Uh, there's definitely been decision, 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 uh, but they haven't been five really exciting decisions, exactly. I should say. So like we've had five – we've had cards like, like UFC 169. I think 11 of 12 fights were decisions, but 11 of 12 were very boring. Uh, so – Yes, like on paper you look at it, yeah, it was all decisions, but I can tell you when I was there, it certainly didn't feel like five decisions because that card flew by. With how, there was no times where I was sitting there just waiting to get through a fight. Like Every single one was just so good. Right, and, and that's what we break this all down. They weren't boring fights. Every single one of them could have been knockouts or, or tapouts, and they weren't, and, and some of them were, were controversial scoring to say the least, but before we get to the big three, the big three fights, the middleweight, welterweight, women's featherweight fights, what else stood out to you about this card? And you can go back to the prelim or the, the fight pass cards. There were some veterans on the bottom end of this card. I think we did see the last of, uh, or maybe we didn't, but Rashad Evans getting knocked out was kind of sad for me, and uh, Overeem as well going down. I, I, I thought this card was stacked. There was a lot of people fighting on the back end that were very famous even to the casual fan so what was your take on some of the prelim and early fights yeah you you hit you hit it hit it on the head i talked about this uh to a few of the fighters when i was there and then uh, i talked about it on my post-fight show is like even going back to ufc utica which was the weekend before i was up there we had gleis and tebow and jake ellenberger on the undercard and they both lost and then a week later uh, and you mentioned Rashad Evans and Overeem, like what, like Clay Guida was also on the undercard. Mm-hmm. Carl Lamas was on the undercard. So it really was a changing of the guards. Like Clay Guida squared off against Charles Oliveira, and Charles Oliveira is something up and comer. He's pretty established. But when I talked to Clay, like 
he was he's close to 30 fights inside the UFC, not just professional MMA, but in the UFC to all around. So Clay Guida was submitted, and then Joseph Benavidez versus Sergio Pettis on the fight pass was a big talking point going in. Yeah. Joseph Benavides was on a six-fight win streak, number ranked number one in the world. His only losses were to uh, Demetrius Johnson. And Sergio Pettis beat him by split. I had Sergio winning. That was one of the closer ones. I didn't really have a problem. Yeah, and then, who, who had that 30-27? I have no idea. That's I thought it was, I it was very it – was, it's, it was a weird – it was a weird to scorecard, but uh, – 29, I had 29-28 Sergio. I uh, had no problem if it was split to Joseph, but I don't agree with the third 27 for Sergio. And then, like you said, Rashad got knocked out in less than a minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's He's been around since uh, he won the Ultimate Fighter 2. So he's <laughs> been through the ups and downs of the UFC. I think he was uh, 5-0, and 4-0 when he joined the UFC. So... And I think he's 19-8 and now. And 19-8 and isn't indicative of his skill level because... I mean, he's beaten Chael Sonnen, Dan Henderson, Tito Ortiz, Rampage, Forrest Griffin. He knocked out Chuck Liddell. He oh, beat yeah. Mike Bisping. So he's beaten the who's who. He's a guaranteed first ballot Hall of Famer. He's just on a five-fight losing streak. And they've two – yes, two of them then split. But that 53-second right. knockout loss to Anthony Smith, who is a very hot prospect. Uh, I talked to him at Media Day, and he's from Nebraska – and the UFC is going to Nebraska very, very – they oh. announced it when he was in camp. He said if he knew they were going to Nebraska, he would have turned down the Rashad Evans fight on this card just to fight in Nebraska. So as soon as they announced the Lincoln-Nebraska card, he goes ah, – he's like, forget the game plan. I'm going to knock this dude out so fast so I can get out healthy and get a quick turnaround for Lincoln-Nebraska. Wow. Uh, so he told me that, and that's literally exactly <laughs> what happened. So – Props to him. He's definitely one to watch in the light heavyweight. He's another middleweight that went up. But, yeah, you said it. Changing the guard, and we didn't right. even talk about Overeem. I mean, he no, got and, – And how many, fight, yeah, how many fights does he have now? Because, I mean, I, I don't – I'm not the biggest Overeem fan, but at a certain point, I mean, the guy's been fighting so long in so many professional fights, not just counting his kickboxing day. I mean, I just – I don't think it's wise anymore for this guy to keep going in there. And he – it's – it's yeah, you – Agreed. Uh, I don't want to say it might not be wise because he, if you talk to him, he just loves fighting. Like whether when he loses, yeah. he just wants to get back in there. I mean, he doesn't care about the movies or the money or right. any of that stuff. He just genuinely really likes combat sports, and he's always the first one to shake his opponent's hand and say like congratulations on winning. He definitely does treat this as a sport, uh, an athletic uh, athletic event where the best fight the best, uh, which is why when he could have got he could have left the UFC a few years ago when his contract ran out, got a lot of money to go to Bellator or Risen or even go back to kickboxing. He's like, no, I want to stick around in the UFC. These are where the best fighters are, and this is where I belong. And I like you can't say Overeem's not a top five heavyweight. I mean, mm-hmm. yes, he had forty. I think he had forty six professional fights before. Curtis Blades had his first or something like that. And then he's 11 fight. He had 11 UFC fights before Curtis Blades even got signed to the UFC. And not not to mention, I mean, he's had the two fights against Badahari. He's fought Gokin Saki. He's fought Tyrone Spong. He's fought Peter Ahertz. These are some of the best. Uh, he's fought, he's lost to Remy Bonyoski. These are some of the best kickboxers who's ever lived. Like those names I named are probably 10 of the greatest kickboxers of all time. And Alistair Overeem has fought them. And but at the same time, I feel like we've had this conversation before. I remember in 2013, he had the back-to-back knockout losses to Antonio Silva and Travis Brown. 
And then two fights later, he gets knocked out by Ben Rothwell. And we're like, oh, he's lost three or four by knockout. Might be time to hang it up. And then he wins four in a row and is all of a sudden fighting for the heavyweight title. Loses to Stipe and then knocks out Mark Hunt and then beats Verdum. So yeah. it's it's not the first time we've had this conversation with Overeem. Uh, so I, I never, if he loses the next one by knockout, then we can talk, but it's hard to, it's hard to write him off just for how much he's done. Yeah. He, he definitely is somebody that can figure it out and keep going. And as you said, has the love to fight. I just, you know, you worry anytime someone's in there. Oh, for long. sure. And this is a sport that will retire you. I mean, just look, we talked about Evans and his fight loss. Blades only with the one loss to Francis. We'll see what he can do. But Jose Young's money, Mitch effect. I do want to talk about. The first fight on the card between two guys that are probably no longer employed by the UFC, Mike Jackson and CM Punk. Look, I, there's two ways to look at it. One, this fight, everybody probably agreed in retrospect, not a main not a main card-worthy fight. On the other side, I get and I respect anybody that's willing to do what they want to do and willing to go into the octagon and take a beating like CM Punk did without tapping out. But it wasn't a great fight. Jackson, I don't I don't know much about him. I don't think I'm going to know much more about him. But you watch that fight and you think, why isn't this guy finishing him? Is it Was it the skill level, Jose? you think he wasn't capable of finishing him? Or is he just, as Dana White said, kind of a clown and, and not really as serious as he needs to be? Um, I think it's a little bit of a combination of both. I know I talked to Mike a lot uh, before his fight, and I've talked to him before his, his first fight with Mickey Gall. And, I mean, he always talks about his brands, like the Mike Jackson brand. Uh, he's a reporter and photographer, and so he knows the ins and outs of the UFC, and he was definitely taking advantage of being on that big stage, that big pay-per-view. And, yeah, maybe he could have finished it, but he said it himself at the end. He's like, I'm 0-1. I understand my skill level. Like, I'm not going to beat most guys in the UFC, like, I'm own one and CM Punk is own one. Like, if he doesn't finish me, is are we saying the same thing? Did he t- did he not take me? Like, if if CM Punk lasted three, beat down Mike Jackson for three rounds and didn't finish him, are we having the same conversation? Are yeah. we just giving CM Punk the benefit of the doubt because yeah, Mike Jackson beat him like beat him up pretty bad, but they had the same record going in. They were both own one. Someone's O had got to go. That was the whole joke going into it. So. I get what Dana White's saying that he should have tried to finish, but Mike Jackson was like, I, I'm not the best fighter, and I didn't want to make mistakes, and for all I know, CM Punk could have caught me. Like like you said it, like CM Punk was not quitting. He kept going. He's like, how embarrassing would that have been if I was beating him up, and then he mm-hmm. caught me with on the chin? or you In the third round, CM Punk even threatened with a triangle from the bottom. I mean, what if Mike Jackson got finished because he was he went too hard and gassed himself out or anything like that, and he becomes the guy that CM Punk came back and knocked out? That would be even more embarrassing. So he said he took him seriously, I and he said he was a tough guy. He punched him a lot. CM Punk didn't give up. So I'll, I have to... I'll have to take Jackson's side, but I see where Dana's coming from. And that's it, right? Like, we're not going to see these either of these guys in the octagon again? Dana said uh, CM Punk should probably retire. Yeah, 39. Uh, yeah, CM Punk said he wants to keep fighting, but uh, the beginning of, on media day, I asked him, I go, win or lose, is this your last fight? He goes, I don't know, maybe. I'm, I'm, I haven't looked that far ahead. I just want to live in the moment and uh, fight. But after he lost to Mickey Gall, CM Punk was very adamant that he was going to fight again. I mean, he told Dana White, he's like, I don't care if it's in the UFC or if it's in front of 30 people. Like, I'm going to fight again. It, it doesn't have to be in the UFC. So, But again, that was 2015 or 2016. That was two years ago. So you really have to wonder where he's at physically, mentally. He did win that big court case. 
So if he does hang it up, I wouldn't blame him, but I, I wouldn't expect him to see in the UFC. And then Dana White told me directly that Mike Jackson will never fight in the UFC again. <laughs> yeah, it's a, I think the exact phrase was I wouldn't put him on the contender series. So Yeah, which is, uh, which is strange because when I talked to Jackson – I asked him, I go, if you win, you're only one and one. Like, what athletic commission is going to sanction a fight between you and a UFC fighter? Like, all you've beaten is CM Punk, and then you lost to a legit grappler, Mickey Gall. And he's like, I mean, I he accepted his his place. He's like, I'll face all the – if you win Dana White Contender Series, I'll fight you. Like, I should be the guy welcoming in these guys because that's my place. So he yeah. gets it. Mike Jackson got it. I thought that would have been a perfect place for him, kind of be the, the, the gatekeeper – from the Welcome contender back. series to the UFC, yeah, I thought that would have been great, but it's not, not, to, not, not going to happen. Well, switching, uh, switching fights here in UFC 225, the women's featherweight. We saw Holly Holm make light work out of Megan Anderson in a, in a unanimous decision. But I want to talk to you about what she said afterward. She said featherweight, bantamweight. I forget how the question was phrased, but she wants as many belts as possible. So Nunez already yeah. responded. I, I know that Holmes held it, held that title before, but I want to know what you think. What do you think is the best course of action for her, Jose? Stay on this featherweight path or switch weight classes yet again? As a fan, I want to see her drop down. Uh, I've seen the Cyborg fight. Um, I think if she drops down to fight Amanda, I, that fight is just awesome. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you saw like Megan Anderson is walks around at like 160 pounds, cuts down to 145, and she's six feet tall. She said sometimes on her off time she balloons up to 170. She towered over Holly Holm, and that's that's difficult to do. Holly's one of the taller women in the in the in the UFC. Uh, she's about the same size size of Cyborg, uh, but I'd like to see her drop down. 135 is her natural weight class. Uh, say she beat and Cyborg seemed to agree. Like Cyborg would have like and to be fair. If they presented, if they offered Cyborg and Holly the rematch, both of them would take it. I mean, Cyborg understood, like, whoever wins this fight, I'll probably fight next. I don't have a problem with it. But then when she said, Amanda, Cyborg sees dollar signs, whereas say Holly beats Amanda. Mm-hmm. Now we have champion versus champion, yeah, which is what the women's division needs. And uh, even Dana White loves it. Like, And then say Amanda beats Holly. Then we'll have Amanda versus Cyborg, Brazilian versus Brazilian, champion versus champion. That would be awesome. Yeah, that's the fight that, I mean, I I think all roads are leading to that. And I was going to ask you why we we haven't been talking about that maybe a little more loudly. But if it's Nunez, Cyborg, that's the only fighter right now that I think could potentially be game to, to stop Cyborg's run. And I would love to see that fight. Yeah, and honestly, I think Holly did great against Cyborg. She lasted all five rounds. Everyone, like She didn't get knocked out. She didn't succumb to punches. She definitely didn't look out of place. Uh, she definitely showed better grappling against Megan than she did against Cyborg. She said she, she worked strictly on her grappling to, to try and negate the, the strength advantage at 145, and I think it really showed where she got full mount on 145 on 170-pound women. So. Uh, I would love to see Holly versus Amanda and then the winner of that fight, Chris Cyborg. I think Chris deserves it. I, Chris deserves the big spotlight. Uh, and I think the Amanda, if she wins, would deserve the big spotlight. And Holly's already a superstar. So I think it makes too much sense to do Holly, Amanda, and then the winner fight Chris. Wow. Yeah, the women's divisions are getting good now. This is uh, – Yeah. Remember a it's couple, really, it's about really a year, awesome. About a year ago, we were struggling for fights. Strawweight was, looked like it was locked up. And now – now there's just so many, so many more good fights. It's really exactly. It's really getting good. Well, let's go to the first of our co-main events. Jose Young's on the Money Mitch Effect, the Wel- Money Mitch Effect, the welterweight title. 
fight. You mentioned dollar signs. Colby Covington defeats Rafael Dos Anjos. And I was like, look, he is a villain. Tried and true is Colby Covington. But I, you know Dana White sees money. You know this is a draw. And people want to see two things happen in fights. Fighters win and fighters lose and get knocked out if you don't like them. So Covington wins this fight. I actually thought this was a really good fight. I, I, I liked the strategy of it. I thought... As 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 good as Rafael did with his takedown defenses, Covington kept coming at him, and I just thought it was a great fight, scored properly, and uh, I'm excited to see the Woodley matchup next. I think the welterweight division is one that I'm excited for as well. But what did you think on this fight in this? Region? Yeah, I love. I I thought the fight was. I thought the fight was great. Uh, Colby definitely caught. Like I didn't. I don't want to say he caught me off guard because all week uh, his coach. Uh, Mike Brown was telling me that Colby was the most well-conditioned athlete he's ever trained. And when Mike Brown says that, like, he's not messing around. He's one of the best coaches uh, in MMA history, former WEC champion, uh, and really built that American talk team uh, to just an elite gym. And I knew Colby had great wrestling. I knew he had been working on his striking. But his last few fights haven't really hadn't really blown me away. Uh, and RDA has just looked like a killer at 170. I mean, he put the beat down on Robbie Lawler. He beat Neil Magny. I mean, he's beating legitimate contenders pretty handily. He is a black belt uh, in Muay Thai and Jiu-Jitsu. Works with uh, um, Jason Perillo, who's one of the best boxing coaches in MMA. Uh, he's uh, Chris Cyborg and Michael Bisming's coach and BJ Penn's old coach. So he knows how to train his people to throw hands. So. I thought RDA, I thought this was the easiest pick. I really did. I I, I thought RDA was going to walk through Colby Covington, uh, either submit him or just just unload with kicks to the body. And Colby Covington, he caught me off guard with how how excellent his gas tank was, how yeah. excellent his game plan was. Where yeah, RDA threw those kicks, but he didn't have room to wind them up because Covington was working so hard for the grappling and the takedowns that he didn't give. RDA any room to really throw any strikes and RDA had his back to the fence pretty much the whole time because if he didn't he would have been taken down so props to Colby he talked a big game and he backed it up so and now Tyron Woodley has his first big money fight in his hand and probably the first time since he's won the belt that Tyron Woodley will be cheered <laughs> yeah that's a, that's a very good point to bring up I, the guy embraces his villain role what did you think when you saw the water bottle that said nerd tears? I mean, I it's it's just Colby being Colby. I yeah. mean as soon as he walked out I go, Of course he has that. I mean he was he, he's he, playing the gimmick, he's playing the bully, he's playing the he's heel, doing yeah. his thing. Yeah, and he was verb I mean you were right there. He was going at it with the media like verbally like, Yeah, told you I was gonna do it on the, the second he walked out of the octagon. Oh so, yeah. I just, I think, you're right on his gas tank. I mean, to do what he did for five rounds against a killer like Dos Anjos is just incredible. And the Woodley fight's fascinating, too, because Woodley's got the best takedown defense probably in the UFC. So th that that's an intriguing fight. There's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of drama and a lot of build-up towards it. But, man, I'm excited now. That welterweight division has a showdown there with Covington with the, with the interim belt. Woodley's going to come back. I'm, I'm excited there. It seems like... It seems like that we don't need as many super fights now as we would have said maybe about a Thank month ago. Thank God. <laughs> yeah. Last fight on the card was the middleweight fight, and a lot to say about this one. Robert Whitaker wins the rematch, wins the second straight time over Yoel Ramiro. It started with the drama in the way, and Ramiro missed weight, so this was not a title fight because he missed it by .2 pounds. 
I'll start with that. We we saw the videos, Jose, where you said he couldn't even walk, Romero, when he when he tried to cut down. He got an extra two period, two hours of grace time to lose that pound that he was over in the first weigh in. And I don't know nearly enough about how all this works, but the reports coming out that his camp said they weren't given the full two hours. That the commission said no, you got to weigh in right now, and that's not UFC jurisdiction. That's a state in Illinois. A lot of elements there, but try to clear up what you can. Was he given a fair shake, Romero, in trying to lose that extra pound, or did the commission just step in and overrule? I'm not, I don't know what happened backstage. I was I was out in the front row during the early weigh-ins. I know for a fact Romero pretty much weighed in. He waited to the like the last five minutes to weigh in. Whether during that last hour he was told to stop cutting weight is I have no idea. I know Dana White said uh, he, that's what happened. I know obviously Romero said that's what happened. His team's actually going to take that to court and sue the athletic commission. Uh, I know Romero couldn't walk. Uh, he was, I saw him with my own eyes basically being carried out. Uh, the bathroom next to it, I believe I heard there was a lot of throw up in the toilet because oh, he was trying man. to hurt himself. He's trying to purge himself. He did the whole, like, exhale all the air out of his body and hold his breath when he got on the scale. But it was he was point two over. That was a wrap. And I can I can tell you, though, he, wait, he weighed in near, near the last seconds. But whether he was told to stop cutting weight prematurely or not, I did not see with my own eyes. I just know from hearsay. Well, well the fight itself was phenomenal. I mean, I, I, my, maybe my favorite fight of the year. And I know the scoring is a little interesting. It was a split decision win from Whitaker, uh, 48-47 on two cards. Romero gets one, 47-48. I do have to say, though, was and I probably would have scored it a draw. Was that fifth round not 10-8, Romero? I had it a draw. Uh, I had that last round 10-8. Uh, that's like a 10-8 I, round to me. I mean, I don't know the technicalities of it, but when I think of like a beatdown round, <laughs> that's probably what I think of. Yeah, I'm, I, I agree with you. It's... T- to me, that's the fight of the year so far. I thought that was an absolute, just mur- like such a violent fight uh, where Robert Whitaker was doing. It went exactly how you'd expect. Robert Whitaker sticking to the outside, slapping in that signature jab, that one-two combination, followed by the head kick that he finished uh, Jacare with. It was just everything was going Robert Whitaker. I mean, he was just teeing him up the first round. And then Yoel Romero just like he can hit you three times and just put you on Queer Street. So it went exactly as I expected, but I did have it a draw 47-47. You know, and also I, I just the respect you gotta give both these guys. And, and this is what we talk about, to have another gear of not just being a competitive fighter, to be a competitive fighter at this level and to what you have to put yourself through. I mean, there were a couple of times when like Whitaker went dead like and didn't get knocked out. Like, yeah, I mean, that, it's, that, that guy's tougher than nails. I mean, Jesus. Yeah, I have no idea how he survived. I mean, that's the punch that Rockhold got dropped. It's Robert Whitaker to me is just him and Max Holloway. I could watch fight every day. I mean, they have they're such high level martial arts. They're just masterful game playing. They're game to fight anyone. Great chins. They're just they're they're very respectful of their opponents, win or lose. They, like Max Holloway's whole gimmick was don't ask for the money fight, become the money fight, and he's well on his way. Uh, Robert Whitaker is unfortunately the unluckiest champion in recent after King Velasquez, where wins beats Roman Romero the first time, but blows his leg knee out, has to wait, and then he gets to come back against Luke Rockhold um, in Australia uh, to headline in his hometown defend his country and then get such bad staph infection that it affects his organs and he has to pull out 
and then he fights he has to rematch Yola Romero after Yola Romero missed weight against Rockhold it's not even belt for belt and then he breaks his hand so severely that his hand was basically a swollen ball after yeah. I saw it backstage like he couldn't even close it it was so broken so I imagine he'll have surgery but it's just a bummer because he he is just such a good such a good human and such a good fighter and the UFC's definitely going to miss his presence. Yeah, he's on a nine fight win streak and yeah, yeah, it just an unbelievable fighter but hasn't actually it's hard to say, you know, he, he hasn't had luck go his way injury-wise, but he's still, you know, an unprecedented champion. You think Romero has to go up, right? I mean, this is two straight times where he's missed weight. Um, I'd maybe give him another another shot cuz he missed weight. The first time he missed weight, he did take it on short notice. Uh, and it wasn't Australia, so he had to fly like 20 hours across the world, uh, cutting weight the whole time. And he 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 looks pretty terrible on the stage, but you could tell he definitely tried. And before then, he'd never missed weight in his life. Uh, he'd always hit championship weight. And then if what he says is true and he was told he had to stop cutting weight and he missed by point two, um, that's like – give him another 10 minutes, he could cut point two pounds. So – I'd give him maybe one more, and if he blows it, uh, then you then you then he, then he'd have to go up. But until then, who knows? Yeah, well, it's exciting. One of the better pay per views of the year for UFC so far. Jose Youngs. Before I let you go, I do want to talk some other things. Boxing is on the brain as well. Sure. And and oddly enough, another golden era fighter and boxer, Terence Crawford, Terence Bud Crawford, with a TKO win over Jeff Horn, who. He's a guy who had weight problems. He barely hit hit the uh, <laughs> he barely yeah. made weight himself, which was even more bizarre. I think we both expected this result. Crawford is pound for pound yeah. a top two or three boxer, and Horn, I, in in my opinion, and probably yours, didn't deserve to even get the victory over Manny Pacquiao, an no old way. old va- veteran Manny Pacquiao. But it is it is beautiful to watch Crawford box because the guy's so quick out there. He's now got titles in three weight classes. And I don't see the an end in sight. This is a lot like Lomachenko and, and Triple G being the other one. He at least has a Canelo or other fighters to fight. But this is a guy in Crawford with no clear challengers, in my opinion. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, I put I have Crawford at three behind Lomachenko and Triple G. Um, I think those are the two best. But Crawford, I mean, every it's like you hit it on the head. I mean, he doesn't really have a champ. He doesn't have a rival. He doesn't have a champion. He doesn't have the Manny Pacquiao's or the Canelo's or the Triple G's, but at the same time, like I, Triple G or Canelo could try and make that weight, or Crawford could try and meet them somewhere. I mean, Floyd Mayweather fought Manny Pacquiao, Manny Pacquiao fought Jeff Horn, and Jeff Horn fought Terence Crawford. So a lot of weight class weight class disparity, but Terence Crawford deserves a lot of spotlight. I mean, he's just what I think what twenty four, twenty five knockouts out of thirty three, and he like, but if you look at his record, no name. Well, they obviously stand out to you and me, but mm-hmm. there's not a lot of names that the casual fan will know, and that's a real bummer because he's putting these like, what his last fight? Uh, this was a ninth round TKO. His last fight was a third round, second round knockout, and before that, I know he fought Felix Diaz, and Felix Diaz threw in the towel. Yeah, so it's not just, yeah, he's not just knocking people out. He's making them quit, and the only other person doing that is Lomachenko right now. So Terence Crawford deserves. A big name fight soon. Yeah, and it won't be Lomachenko because I mean they were no. what one thirty five is what Lomachenko had to move up to get to, and Crawford might not be coming down to there for a while. Yeah, that, that no. fight. I think his dad Lomachenko said there's no way. That's ter- that's a terrible no idea. That they I think <laughs> if you ask Lomachenko, he'd do it, but his team won't let him. 
No, and, and I get it too. But yeah, he's just unbelievable boxer now. Thirty three and zero, winning the welterweight title. The other big boxing news finally, finally, Fine. we have an agreement between Camp Joshua and Camp Wilder for what would be the greatest heavyweight title fight, at least pre-fight matchup, since Tyson Lewis. Two undefeated heavyweights. There's no one else left for them to fight. You brought that up time and time again, right? Like, there's nothing left for either of these guys to prove other than to face each other. The only other person I would say is Tyson Fury. Uh, he obviously de- technically never lost. See all his, his comeback. Fights. His comeback. Yeah, he's, he's got a lot of work to do. Yeah, he's got a lot of work to do. But he like it, his like Tyson Fury's winning over um, uh, Klitschko was shockingly boring. It was mm-hmm. one of the most boring heavyweight title fights I've ever seen. But People want to watch him fight for the same reason they want to watch Chael Sonnen and Conor McGregor and Colby Covington fight. He talks so much that he sells the fight with his mouth, and then he fights, and you're like, "What did I pay? What did I pay for this?" But you tune in regardless. Uh, so Tyson Fury, whether he matched up with Joshua or or um, Wilder, could sell that fight so well. But whoever wins this fight. And I will say it's a verbal agreement by Deontay Wilder's team. They said they accepted it. They did the smart thing. They said, we accept the fight. We're also offering you even more money to take the fight in the United States. So the ball is completely in Anthony, in, uh, Anthony Joshua's corner. Uh, he's, his team has been going about this weird where they keep saying, like, oh, we don't want to fight in the U.S. because the judging uh, – the judging is weird. We want him to come over here because right. the judge, no, the judge. I'm like, but you're, that would be the same thing. They're just going about it very weird. Uh, I know Anthony Joshua would take the fight. It's really his team. That I know. I keep saying that, but like these, like Manny Pacquiao and Mayweather would fight no any time. They just did it because they'd make a lot more money. Uh, same as Canelo Triple G. Uh, but Deontay Wilder and his camp did the smart thing where they put it out. They accepted it. They offered even more money to fight in the United States. They're doing so many interviews, uh, saying like telling anyone who goes, "Hey man, can I get a few minutes for some details?" They say right. yes. So, pretty much, it's out there. It is entirely in Anthony Joshua's corner. And if he doesn't accept it, that's he's going to be the heel going into the going into the fight because Deontay Wilder's made it clear he's down. Yeah, they backed him into a corner, which is what you uh, have to the, do to lock these. Our business decision. I just hope, I mean, we'll see because we're going to have sports betting legal in a lot of uh, these states and, and obviously over there for the fight. I'm just curious, what do you think the line would be on a I fight would, with I Joshua in, in the U.K.? I would say Anthony Joshua would be the favorite for sure. Yeah. Um, he, has, he has four of the belts for a reason. Uh, you and I have talked about it both on and off air where if you just watch Deontay Wilder's highlights, he looks like the best boxer who's ever lived. But then if you watch his whole fight, he doesn't really have a lot of defense, and he just throws those massive haymakers. So right. if for a, a student of the boxing game, you would have to assume Anthony Joshua is the better fighter. But, but if the, Deontay Wilder lands one punch, he could be dead. I mean, so and, and, Joshua, and Joshua leaves himself vulnerable. Oh, that's what I'm saying. Both he these guys, yeah, both these guys hit so hard, and they do leave themselves vulnerable. It's a fascinating fight, and it's the heavyweight fight we've needed, and there's going to be a lot of buzz. You know this. I mean, and, and I think the hope, right, is that it's not just a complete one-sided domination. Like, even if it was a quick knockout, you could still be like, it was one punch, let's run it back for a rematch. Because boxing, the boxing world is praying for an epic trilogy out of this. Oh, 100%. I mean, I, I know they don't want a Triple G Canelo 
debacle where it was such a that fight was so good yeah but then it was marred in controversy both uh-huh. on the scorecards and then after where canelo tested positive but i know they want just like a war where fans are going ballistic and say wilder wins in the uk then they rematch in the u.s and i we talked about this like why wouldn't they try and put that in like the big like in like what t- that tiger stadium where lsu plays like yeah. Stick that in like ba- somewhere in Bama, where either where the Crimson Tide play or where uh, the LSU Tigers play, or even stick it in Atlanta's new arena. That's what like, I was stick thinking. Stick that somewhere down south. Yeah. Make Wilder go to uh, Josh. Uh, make Joshua go to Wilder's place. Like he's the bronze bomber for a reason. And then say Wilder wins that, then you do the trilogy in Las Vegas. I mean, I know that's what the boxing world wants, but first we got to get ink to paper. Yeah. Wow. A lot, of, a lot of great possibilities. So, if you haven't noticed, I'm really hyped for this fight. <laughs> we both are, man. I've been, I've been hyped for it for over a year now, and it looks like we're finally going to get it. All right. Well, lastly, before I let you go, New Japan Pro Wrestling has Is a near and dear place in your heart. Chris Jericho's back, and he's a champion. He defeated Naito for his Intercontinental Belt, the equivalent of the Intercontinental Title over in New Japan. And if I have this right, that's the first belt he's ever won in that promotion. Chris Jericho, yeah. I mean, he just debuted very recently. So, yeah. It's, wow, he's 47, 48 years old. Naito was your guy. He was in, what, the main event last year at the Tokyo Dome? Yeah. Jericho beats him. I'm Okay, and and I'll say I watched this match. It was a great match. It was way better than Jericho and Omega, in my opinion. But having said that, I don't know about giving a title to a guy who's basically on loan or on a short-term deal from the WWE over what would be your breadwinner. Then again, I don't really know much about the booking decisions in New Japan Pro Wrestling. So enlighten me, Jose, what you thought and if you did think this was a good match and the right move. Um, I was surprised that they pulled the trigger so quickly. I'm not surprised Naito lost because they don't want Jericho to be 0-2 against two of the three biggest stars, if that makes sense. Because he goes 0-2, he, loses, he does lose credibility. Uh, as a contender and Jericho and Naito I'm sure will run it back Naito is one of those champions or wrestlers that doesn't need the belt to be a big deal uh Tetsuya Naito is arguably the biggest the most popular wrestler in Japan uh yeah Kenny Omega and Okada might be more popular around the world but Naito is the guy over there in Japan he might I keep hearing he has hurt knees so if he does have a like a, a banged up knee, maybe that's maybe that's where they're going. Like give him some time off, put him in those multi man matches where he's one of, like you know the Rock. Like all he has to do is lift his eyebrow and do the come come get it, and the fans yeah. go nuts. Like all Naito has to do is just play to the crowd, and fans will love it. He doesn't have to wrestle. Uh, so if that's the case, maybe they want him healthy for the G one. Uh, that's in a few weeks, and that's their their big tournament to decide who does headline the Tokyo Dome. So. I would get it if they want him to heal up in time for that because that's like 12 matches in a month. Which, But in, if you know, if you watch Naito, he doesn't take – when it's a big match, he doesn't go slow. Like he's going to go a hard 30 minutes. So maybe they want to heal him up. Maybe they want Jericho uh, to go after Evil, which is one of uh, Tetsuya Naito's uh, stablemates in LIJ. Uh, they have Evil and Sonata are two of the, the up-and-coming uh, wrestlers in New Japan, and they're both partners with Naito. Naito is the leader. And Evil and Sonata just lost the tag titles to the Young Bucks, and Evil seems to hint that he was going to go after Jericho. 
So maybe they kind of want to build Evil as a next big single star by using Jericho's name, kind of like to get the shine, like the famous shine. So I wouldn't mind wow. that because Evil is a great wrestler uh, and very weird gimmick, very popular. So if that's the if that's the direction, I wouldn't mind it. But every time I seem to question New Japan, they pull something out that shocks me, and I go, "Why did I ever question you? This is awesome." So uh, I'm not I'm not going to question this one. I knew you were the perfect person to ask for this, but no, I, it may, your your reasoning makes sense. Um, they value wins and losses for legit contenders in Jericho. Exactly. And exactly. they're thinking ten steps down the road. There is that theory in all profession, in all promotions of wrestling, that certain guys just don't need the title. And uh, yeah, I'm, I I think it's a great plan. I just I was shocked that he came back, wrestled, put on a good match with Naito. Um, Naito, well, unbelievable in the ring. I got to watch more of him. I know he's your guy, but just he like selling the code breaker, I think was the best that I'd ever seen. Uh, oh, for sure. So I just little things like that. It's exciting. Uh, I guess I'll leave you with one last thing. There's been a lot of rumor that SummerSlam is going to be the finally awaited Roman Reigns coronation, and Brock Lesnar might be done for good. Do you think either of those things happen? I Dana White said that his contract ends in the summer, which obviously would seem to make sense uh, that it would be SummerSlam. I know John Jones really wants to fight Brock Lesnar, and Brock Lesnar really wants to fight John Jones, which honestly I kind of want to watch that. As weird as that sounds, yeah, I think yeah, that's I'm with you. That's to me. That's like the perfect definition of an MMA fight, where you have this human being in Brock Lesnar who is just physically bigger and stronger and faster. Like he's just physically better at everything. Then you have John Jones, who's just the most has the highest fighter IQ out of anyone not named George St. Pierre. So it's really like, what's better, pure brute strength and speed, or game planning and skill? And I think that is the that fight is awesome. So I would want to see it, but at the same time, John Jones has to go through his USADA hearing and uh, California State Athletic hearing, so he might not be able to do it. Maybe Brock Lesnar needs to get back into the USADA pool, but uh, all signs seem to point that it's going to be Roman Reigns and Brock Lesnar again at SummerSlam, which is... Can't wait. You know, you know how I feel about that. Yeah, I know, I know. Uh, <laughs> but all right, Jose Youngs, this was a blast. Good talking UFC boxing and a little pro wrestling with you. And we'll be we'll be talking in the summer. There's a pretty big uh, title fight at the heavyweight ranks that I want There's to discuss. There's two, and then on that same card, we got Max and Brian Ortega. So oh, stack card. It's going to be great there as well. Jose Youngs, this was a blast. Thanks for coming on the show. For sure, man. That's it for today's episode of The Money Mitch Effect. Big thanks to both guests, Rachel Stolman and Jose Youngs. We'll be talking more tennis, more combat sports, UFC in the future. But big thanks again to them. Later in the week, we're going to do another quick recap. Got to talk about the Capitals. The parade is today. They won the championship. Ovechkin played amazing. They clinched in Vegas, so they had been going on, and they're currently still going on the greatest bender in pro sports championship history. What a celebration. All outside D.C., but the best thing about it, and we'll get into it later in the week, is that they are celebrating with the fans. They are sharing that trophy with them, which you might not see uh, in some other sports, some other teams especially. But big shout-out, big props to them. Great to see Ovechkin hoist that cup for the first time. He, was, he had chills. He was literally shaking. It was uh, an epic moment, uh, certainly. This was the Money Mitch Effect. I am Mitch Michaels. If you like the show, share it. Leave a rating, a review. It's on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. Check us out at the Money Mitch Effect Facebook page. Until next time, keep enjoying sports. Keep listening to the podcast.